On this edition of the Iowa Business Report, we use money to make economic calculations, right? Invest, don't invest, profit, loss. A new book focuses on how to address the current unique form of inflation. What does the ownership change at Twitter mean for your business's social media plan? And in our business profile, you'll learn about an Iowa-based business that has evolved beyond the borders of the U.S. This is the Iowa Business Report, moving from April into May 2022. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. Here is Jeff Stein. We know the numbers by heart, the levels of year-to-year inflation that are the worst in 40 years. A new book was released last week entitled Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. The authors are Steve Forbes, chairman of Forbes Media, journalist Elizabeth Ames, and internationally known expert on money and taxation, Nathan Lewis. Nathan Lewis and I connected by Zoom on April 27th. When we decided we needed to write a book like this, when we saw uh, the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world getting very aggressive during COVID 2020, the Federal Reserve actually you know, created about $3 trillion basically out of nothing. And this money essentially was used to finance a gigantic government deficit of over 15% of GDP in 2020. This didn't seem like we're going down a dangerous path here. This time around, it has had some effects, and we're definitely feeling the rising prices of that. But it was especially our concern that we didn't want this to become a habit. And I think if we try this even just once more, um, we're now hearing MMT about type arguments in Congress and so forth. Uh, we could get on the path of seriously undermining our currency situation in the United States. What is different about this situation and this spike of inflation as opposed to some of the other markers that we have looked at historically in comparing things now to back then? Today, we're seeing something that it's pretty hard to find any precedent for maybe outside of World War II. The kind of supply-demand issues that we're seeing now, which is not monetary, it's not doesn't have to do with the Federal Reserve, but the supply chain issues everyone's been talking about, the intensity of them and also the persistence of them is pretty unusual. They seem actually like they're going to get worse, not better going forward. Now we have new shutdowns in China and et cetera, et cetera, new fertilizer restrictions on agriculture. So that's real. And there's nothing the Federal Reserve can do about that directly. You know, You have to go there and start the auto factories again or what have you. But this is combined with the effects we are feeling now of that previously very aggressive monetary expansion. To make a long story short, basically what's happened is the value of our currency has declined somewhat, not a whole lot, but it's there. And this is being felt, markets adjust to this with higher prices. I've talked to a number of people who have said something very similar. In other words, you've got the Fed now trying to control inflation. But the tools they have are not adequate and never were designed to be adequate to handle these, if you will, non-monetary causes. So this is a much bigger issue than one federal agency, albeit one with that power, to just simply come in and adjust rates up or down. Exactly. Part of the problem is the words itself that we use. This term inflation is just kind of a grab bag of all kinds of things 
that may influence prices higher or lower. It can be supply demand issues, you know, kind of shortages, like we said. It can be actually just plain old economic health, where you might see rising wages and rising asset values. It can be monetary, like we said. So you really have to diagnose what's going on. And then out of that diagnosis, come with sensible solutions. Instead, we kind of getting the uh, three wrongs make right theory, which is it's not the first time we've done this numerous times in US history. The theory basically is we need more unemployment. And that way, it'll cool the tight labor market. People won't have any money, so they can't buy anything. And therefore, the empty store shelves will be less relevant. <laughs> One of the problems we see there is that if we actually have a recession, as they sort of plan now, what's the next step? Well, it's exactly what we kind of wanted to write this book about. And the next step, likely, we have Democratic administrations that are going to spend a ton of money in Congress, probably over 10% of GDP, let's just recent precedent. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on the central bank to finance this one way or the other and have another round of monetary expansion. But in doing that, you're destabilizing an unstable currency even further, are you not? I'm not an economist, but it would just seem to make sense that if the dollar is not sound to begin with, and then you take further steps to undermine what limited foundation there is, you're only asking for trouble, not just long term, but really short term as well. Yeah, exactly. I think there's some risk of that here. In our book, we wanted to say you have to get away from prices and the CPI and trying to fix monetary problems with more unemployment and and your taxes, which now Chuck Schumer has gone out with. We need higher taxes. So people don't have any money. They don't spend the money to drive price. You know, it's like this kind of logic. We really want to focus on maintaining a stable currency value. And if you maintain a stable currency value, the currency value doesn't decline. That's what stable currency value means. And then you don't have any further additional inflation problems. This is basically what Paul Volcker did and Al Greenspan did in the 80s and 90s. They ended the inflation in the 70s by by just keeping the dollar very crudely stable. It actually went up and down a lot, but it didn't have a trend up or down. And in, in US history, as we've written about in the book, this was accomplished in a much more precise and effective way by tying the value of the dollar to gold. Well, is that the solution then? Or what steps should be taken if some of the things that they're doing now don't seem to be appropriate for the given fact pattern, the given situation? What are some of the remedies that you would advocate? Just dealing in a real direct way with the present situation, we have to deal with these non-monetary supply demand factors, starting the auto factories again, unblocking the ports, building more houses, whatever it is, these kind of things. And then we have to, at the very least, keep the dollar from falling any further. And I think the Fed kind of understands this and they, they would actually sort of like to go down that path if they're not pressured by Congress otherwise. And in the short term, that'll work. In the long term, what we've seen is the Federal Reserve and other central banks have had a cycle of, yeah, they kind of get their act together and then they kind of lose the plot after a while. And the long term trend over the last 50 years of floating currency since 1971, since we left the gold standard, has been a persistent, or, you know, or let's say intermittent series of declines in our currency's value, such that actually, you know, by my estimate today, that US dollar is only worth about 150th of what it was worth in the 1960s. We have a two cent dollar. And so, although they might get it right over the next 18 months, uh, then, you know, some other Federal Reserve guy comes in, some other president, some other administration, and they do the same thing over and over again. Is that not part of the overall problem? In other words, if you take a monetary system and you inject the variations that come with politics into it, that makes it very hard for the system to operate, but it makes it very hard for investors, business owners, folks with uh, small side businesses. They can't plan 
And isn't that one of the great limitations to the American economy? Precisely. There's a lot that can be said about what the consequences of an economy are when you have a currency either that goes up and down kind of unpredictably and randomly, but doesn't necessarily lose a lot of value over time, which we sort of had in the 80s and 90s. Or if you have, you know, sort of a long-term permanent decline in currency value, which we've had over the broader spectrum and which we've had recently, a lot of things happen to an economy. And basically, if you want to think of it, George Gilder, the intellectual, I guess you'd call him, wrote actually a pretty good book about it. It's not known very well, but The Scandal of Money. And he said, you know, the real problem is economic calculation. We use money to make economic calculations, right? Invest, don't invest, profit, loss. These are economic calculations too. What do you do? Well, you know, do, am I going to take this job? Or am I going to take that job? You know, am I going to buy bonds? Or am I going to buy stocks? These kind of things. If the value of the money, which is sort of the medium by which we make all these calculations, is unpredictable, then it's pretty hard to calculate, isn't it? And consequently, we make bad decisions. What the Austrians called malinvestment 50 years ago. Many of the people who listen to this program are involved in business of various sizes. So you already had COVID, which was unexpected. Now you have this level of inflation, which, as we've discussed, is caused by things different from what we've dealt with before when we had inflation. So what's the short advice that you can give other than study up and pay close attention? But what advice can you give to someone who's involved in business? The single best thing, I think, for a businessman or an investor, someone who plays close attention to economic developments, is simply to have an understanding of the processes involved. You know, I can't really predict the future. I can't really say, you know, you got to do this because in five years, you know, that's going to happen because everyone tries that is always wrong. <laughs> but you should have a pretty good idea of the economic processes involved that you might be faced with. And it's pretty easy to understand if you just think about it as a decline in currency value, because that's what it is, essentially. And I say, it's real obvious when it happens to someone else. <laughs> I like many things in life. <laughs> Let's look at Mexico. They have a floating fiat currency, just like us. They have a central bank that kind of makes stuff up as they go along, just like us. They have intermittent declines in the value of their currency, just like us. Value of the Mexican peso today is about 20 to the dollar. In the 90s, is about three at the beginning. Went from three, 20. Peso's worthless. So just imagine if you were a businessman in Mexico or an employee or anyone just trying to get by, what does that do to your environment? Well, it's obviously, if you're a worker, you have to make six times as much money in, in nominal terms, in terms of pesos, just to kind of have the same real value. Not that the dollar is a good comparator. And it's kind of similarly for business, you have to kind of take into account this kind of environment that you're, that you're existing or an investor. If the peso is worth only one sixth as much then the, a bond denominated in pesos is going to get splattered unless you're making all the money back on interest, right? Things like that. If you just think about it, that is probably the best thing. Nathan Lewis, who along with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames are the authors of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It, published this month by Encounter Books. Still to come, will a new owner of Twitter change how your business connects with customers? and the story of a group of Iowa-based companies which has adapted to changing business needs here and globally. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. Do me a favor, farmers of Iowa, and honk your horn if you're proud to grow soybeans. Now that I've got your attention, 
take advantage of the programs, information, and opportunities provided by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. If you market 250 bushels or more of soybeans annually, a bumper crop of benefits is easily accessible. Just make the connection at IASoybeans.com and reap the benefits of belonging. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa. Their May Business Owner Workshop is entitled, Growth Costs Money. It will be held on Thursday, May 5th from 9 to 11 a.m. For more information or to register, check out the upcoming events section at AdvanceIowa.com. The Twitter saga took a turn on Monday of this past week when the social media platform's board did an about-face and opted to accept a buyout offer from Elon Musk, who says he'll take Twitter private. What does all this mean for businesses who use Twitter and other social media accounts? Josh Scheinblum is chief creative officer for Five Seasons Media, based in Cedar Rapids. The idea that you go on Twitter and somehow it reaches a massive audience is only really half of the equation. Twitter is part of a broader social media strategy. The reason that you are on Twitter, at least right now, before these new innovations come to fruition, is because we know that our clients will be seen by, frankly, folks like you and those in similar positions, and that is how you can use an earned media strategy, getting on the news, getting on the radio, to then take that content and use it to amplify your voice even further. Twitter has a purpose right now, but it's, it's very limited. The largest Twitter innovation that happened was in 2017 to increase the number of characters. You might remember they tried to do something called Twitter Stories, little small videos that you could put over your icon, an idea that they copied from Facebook which Facebook copied from Instagram, and around and around we go. We're not seeing a lot of original ideas here. And I think that Twitter, if Musk has his way, is going to be fundamentally different than what we see now. If you want to leave the platform, regardless of what your political beliefs are, I think that it's a giant missed opportunity. And even if you never do anything with it, go secure your digital real estate. It costs you nothing. And if you look at the demographics for Twitter alone, the largest age groups are between the ages of 25 and 42, roughly. These are consumers with money. These are the people that you want to reach. And while under the current system, it's frankly favored those who can purchase lots and lots of ad dollars, if we're able to do something like open source the algorithm, really democratize this platform, the things that Elon Musk is talking about, that is going to have direct implications for what's happening on Main Street. If the hill that someone's going to die on, the, 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 the final straw, I'm not going to do Twitter because Elon Musk is taking it to private ownership, and you bring up moral issues or you're concerned about who might else join the platform, I've been amazed that there really hasn't been a serious discussion about that we have third-world dictators on this platform, that we have real white supremacists, on this platform, that we have state sponsors of terrorism that are currently on this platform. So, you know, when we hear that somebody with the ambiance, somebody with the track record of success, somebody who's built multi-billion dollar businesses, 
says that I'm going to come in, I'm going to do something differently, how there are some who will immediately shut that idea out. Forgive me, but that's one of those mental bridges that I simply just have not been able to grasp. And if you are a business currently, a small business, you're concerned about your brand, do you want to join this digital fight club? Do you want to take that risk for your brand other than what the status quo is now? I think you need to be open to change, to be open to innovation. And the ideas that Mr. Musk is putting forward, I think, are very interesting ideas that could have a positive direct impact on a small business's bottom line. Coming up, a business that has taken its Iowa values with it when expanding domestically and globally. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report. A politician wearing a bow tie walks into a bar and orders a pint of Guinness. Where is he? Why, in Waterloo, of course. The clip-on bow tie was invented in Waterloo, Iowa in 1918 at the same location where Jameson's Public House is today, in the city where the bow tie sporting Quentin Hart proudly serves as mayor. Which begs the question, why not Waterloo? I'm Mayor Quentin Hart, inviting you to Waterloo. Come for a visit, stay for the great quality of life. Look us up at cityofwaterlooiowa.com. Support for the Iowa Business Report comes from the Iowa Business Council, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to elevate Iowa's economy through leadership, research, and advocacy. Learn more and review this year's competitive dashboard data by going to iowabusinesscouncil.org. In our business profile, we'll reintroduce you to CBE companies based in Cedar Falls. As Chairman and CEO Tom Penaluna told me when we spoke in the summer of 2020, his group has evolved as the needs of its customers has evolved. So we are primarily a call center business. We do all sorts of things for many national credit grantors that pertain around debt collection. It could be uh, around billing. We do a number of billing programs, insurance investigation and follow-up. We have a data and data analytics company. We also have a, a fraud unit that actually does some fraud work for some national credit granters. Uh, that's been a really major growing area in the last few years. Fraud is just running rampant in the marketplace. And that's primarily we do a a little bit of all of that stuff. I'm always interested when I talk to people for this program about their locations. For example, you have a corporate headquarters in Cedar Falls, two operational centers in Waterloo. Well, that all seems to make some sense. But you have a center in Texas and a center in the Philippines. And as I say, this is not the first time I've come upon this where a company has a concentrated cluster of offices and then there's one far away in this country and then another one halfway around the globe. Tell me how that happens, how it is that you look to your expansion and select the places you do in order to put your people. I wish it was an easy way to answer that question. It's predominantly driven by our clients. We have customers that come to us and say, listen, if you want to continue working our business, we need to reduce costs by X percentage. And we think you can only do that if you have an offshore solution for us. 
So we've been in the Philippines now close to five years. And the first time we did that, it was kind of a learning experience. But, you know, we've gotten pretty good. I think we have close to 400 people in the Philippines right now that works a a number of various credit grantors that want us to do that. We have some first party accounts. And when I say first party, we work it in the customer's name that are in the Philippines. So it's primarily customer driven and the need to address their cost needs. One of the reasons we chose the Philippines is the Philippines is a very family oriented country. I think a lot of people you interview our employees, they're going to tell you that it feels like family to us here. We have a couple of people that went down and opened up our uh, Texas office that were born and raised in Waterloo and were raised up through our company that went down there and did an incredible job of running that facility as if it was one of our facilities here in the Waterloo Sea Falls area. That's one of the secrets. I know it's kind of a cliche and everybody says, you know, your people are the most important thing, but I'm really telling you that is a true fact when it comes around to our company. Our people really believe in our core values and live those core values every single day. All our offices have those core values and we talk about them all the time at our quarterly meetings, and you can see it in every one of our facilities. Tom Penaluna, chair and CEO of CBE Companies, online at cbecompanies.com. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. We're also found on all the major podcast distributors, 19 now in all. The Iowa Business Report is presented by Advance Iowa, leading successful business, innovation, growth, and transitions. Search for Advance Iowa on LinkedIn and Facebook and get more at AdvanceIowa.com. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.